sit together in the dark. They speak. Their voices rise together. Their voices fall together. One voice speaks of this, the other of that. When they join, their words turn into flames, their voices into fire. This is Voice of the Fire, a podcast about storytelling. Hello and welcome to Voice of the Fire. I meant for this episode to be an introductory episode. However, I decided against that because I think you'll get to know me soon enough if you keep listening by the stories that I choose to tell. So there really is very little grounds and reason to talk about myself a lot. My name, as perhaps you would like to know, is Sebastian, and I am a storyteller. Instead of introducing myself, I would like to use this first episode of Voice of the Fire to say goodbye. To say goodbye to one of the most important probably one of the greatest living writers uh, of our times who died last week. I'm speaking about Ursula K. Le Guin, a woman who managed to transcend quite a lot of different genres, who escapes classification, you might want to call her a science fiction or a fantasy writer, but neither of these labels is quite true. You might call her a feminist writer, though that's not quite true either. You can certainly call her a wise writer, and a kind one. Most people will perhaps know of her through her Earthsea uh, series, the series of books set on the fictional Land of Earthsea, ostensibly a fantasy series, the life of the wizard Ged, how he becomes Archmage of the Isles, and later on how he loses his power. Or you might know her from her explorations of different societies of different social structures, different sexual structures. You might have heard of something um, that is called a kema, which is what the inhabitants of Geth, who are principally asexual, enter into every month. It's like an intense period of heat and procreation. You might have heard of a sedoretu, which is a four-person marriage, the evening and the morning marriage. I don't know what you have read about her or from her, 
I hope it is something. If there's nothing that you know, if you don't know anything, if the name seems entirely unfamiliar to you, go out, get a copy of Earthsea if you vaguely like fantasy, or grab the left hand of darkness, or the dispossessed if you veer more towards science fiction. You'll find a woman who had a very, very deep, a very sharp mind, tempered with kindness. Someone who was more interested in observing and understanding than fighting or conquering. Someone who knew the value of stillness and of silence. Someone who loved the sea. Someone who understood about the importance of names. And someone who could be fierce when needed. So the story I would like to start this podcast series with is one of Ursula Le Guin's stories. It might be considered one of the best known. I've certainly seen the title pop up in several of her obituaries. It is a very good introduction to her writing. And it serves to show you that her kindness always comes with an edge. The story I am talking about is called The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. With a clamour of bells that set the swallows soaring, the festival of summer came to the city Omelas, bright-towered by the sea. The rigging of the boats in harbour sparkled with flags. In the streets, between houses with red roofs and painted walls, between old moss-grown gardens and under avenues of trees, past great parks and public buildings, processions moved. Some were decorous. Old people in long stiff robes of mauve and grey, grave master workmen, quiet merry women carrying their babies and chatting as they walked. In other streets the music beat faster, a shimmering of gong and tambourine, and the people went dancing, the procession was a dance. Children dodged in and out, the high chords rising like the swallows crossing flights over the music and the singing. All the processions wound towards the north side of the city, where on the great water meadow called the Green Fields, boys and girls naked in the bright air with mud-stained feet and ankles and long lithe arms exercised their restive horses before the race. The horses wore no gear at all but a halter without bit. Their manes were braided with streamers of silver gold and green. 
They flared their nostrils and pranced and boasted to one another. They were vastly excited, the horse being the only animal who has adopted our ceremonies as his own. Far off to the north and west the mountains stood up half-encircling Omelas on her bay. The air of morning was so clear that the snow still crowning the eighteen peaks burned with white-gold fire across the miles of sunlit air under the dark blue of the sky. There was just enough wind to make the banners that marked the race course snap and flutter now and then. In the silence of the broad green meadows one could hear the music winding through the city streets farther and nearer and ever approaching, a cheerful faint sweetness of the air that from time to time trembled and gathered together and broke out into the great joyous clanging of the bells. Joyous! How, how is one to tell about joy? How describe the citizens of Omelas? They were not simple folk, you see, though they were happy. But we do not say the words of cheer much any more. All smiles have become archaic. Given a description such as this one tends to make certain assumptions. Given a description such as this one tends to look next for the king mounted on a splendid stallion and surrounded by his noble knights, or perhaps in a golden litter, borne by a great muscled slave. But there was no king. They did not use swords or keep slaves. They were not barbarians. I do not know the rules and laws of their society, but I suspect that they were singularly few as they did without monarchy and slavery, so they also got on without the stock exchange, the advertisement, the secret police, and the bomb. Yet I repeat that these were not simple folk, not dulcet shepherds, noble savages, bland utopians. They were not less complex than us. The trouble is that we have a bad habit, encouraged by pedants and sophisticates, of considering happiness as something rather stupid. Only pain is intellectual, only evil interesting. This is the treason of the artist, the refusal to admit the banality of evil and the terrible boredom of pain. If you can't lick them, join them. If it hurts, repeat it. But to praise despair is to condemn delight. To embrace violence is to lose hold of everything else. We have almost lost hold. We can no longer describe a happy man, nor make any celebration of joy. How can I tell you about the people of Omelas? They were not naive and happy children though their children were, in fact, happy. They were mature, intelligent, passionate adults whose lives were not wretched. Ha! Miracle! Oh. oh, yes, it was, but I wish I could describe it better. I wish I could convince you. Omelas sounds, in my words, like a city in a fairy tale, long ago and far away. Once upon a time...
Perhaps it would be best if you imagined it as your own fancy bits. Assuming it will rise to the occasion, for certainly I cannot suit you all. For instance, how about technology? I think that there would be no cars or helicopters in and above the streets. This follows from the fact that the people of Omelas are happy people. Happiness is based on a just discrimination of what is necessary, what is neither necessary nor destructive, and what is destructive. In the middle category, however, that of the unnecessary but undestructive, that of comfort, luxury, exuberance, etc., they could perfectly well have central heating, subway trains, washing machines, and all kinds of marvellous devices not yet invented here, floating light sources, fuelless power, a cure for the common cold. Or they could have none of that. Doesn't matter. As you like it. I incline to think that people from towns up and down the coast have been coming in to Omelas during the last days before the festival on very fast little trains and double-decked trams, and that the train station of Omelas is actually the handsomest building in town, though plainer than the magnificent farmer's market. But even granted trains, I fear that Omelas so far strikes some of you as a goody-goody. Smiles, bells, parades, horses, bleh. If so, please add an orgy. If an orgy would help, don't hesitate. Let us not, however, have temples from which issue beautiful nude priests and priestesses already half in ecstasy and ready to copulate with any man or woman lover or stranger who desires union with the deep godhead of the blood, although that was my first idea. But really, it would be better not to have temples in Omelas. At least, not manned temples. Religion, yes. Clergy, no. Surely the beautiful nudes can just wander about, offering themselves like divine souffles to the hunger of the needy and the rapture of the flesh. Let them join the processions. Let tambourines be struck above the copulations and the glory of desire be proclaimed upon the gongs and, a not unimportant point, let the offspring of these delightful rituals be beloved and looked after by all. One thing I know there is none of in Omelas is guilt. But what else should there be? I thought at first there were no drugs, but that is puritanical. For those who like it, the faint insistent sweetness of Druze may perfume the ways of the city, Druze which first brings a great lightness and brilliance to the mind and limbs, and then after some hours a dreamy languor, and wonderful visions at least of the very arcana and inmost secrets of the universe, as well as exciting the pleasure of sex beyond all belief. And it is not habit-forming. For more modest tastes, I think there ought to be beer. Well, what else? What else belongs in the joyous city? The sense of victory, surely, the celebration of courage. But, as we did without clergy, let us do without soldiers. The joy built upon successful slaughter is not the right kind of joy. It will not do. It is fearful and it is trivial. 
a boundless and generous contentment, a magnanimous triumph felt not against some outer enemy, but in communion with the finest and fairest in the souls of all men everywhere, and the splendour of the world's summer. This is what swells the hearts of the people of Omelas, and the victory they celebrate is that of life. I really don't think many of them need to take Druze. Most of the processions have reached the green fields by now. A marvellous smell of cooking goes forth from the red and blue tents of the provisioners. The faces of small children are amiably sticky. In the benign grey beard of a man a couple of crumbs of rich pastry are entangled. The youths and girls have mounted their horses and are beginning to group around the starting line of the course. An old woman, small, fat and laughing, is passing out flowers from a basket and tall young men wear her flowers in their shining hair. A child of nine or ten sits at the edge of the crowd alone playing on a wooden flute. People pause to listen and they smile, but they do not speak to him, for he never sees his playing and never sees them, his dark eyes holly wrapped in the sweet thin magic of the tune. He finishes and slowly lowers his hands, holding the wooden flute. As if that little private silence were the signal, all at once a trumpet sounds from the pavilion near the starting line, imperious, melancholy, piercing. The horses rear on their slender legs and some of them neigh in answer. Sober-faced, the young riders stroke the horses' necks and soothe them, whispering, Quiet, quiet there, my beauty, my hope. They begin to form in rank along the starting line. The crowds along the race course are like a field of grass and flowers in the wind. The festival of summer has begun. Do you believe? Do you accept the festival, the city, the joy? No? Then let me describe one more thing. In a basement under one of the beautiful public buildings of Omelas, or perhaps in the cellar of one of its spacious private homes, there is a room. It has one locked door and no window. A little light seeps in dustily between cracks in the boards, second-hand from a cobwebbed window somewhere across the cellar. In one corner of the little room a couple of mops with stiff, clotted, foul-smelling heads stand near a rusty bucket. The floor is dirt, a little damp to the touch as cellar dirt usually is. The room is about three paces long and two wide. A mere broom closet or disused tool room. In the room, a child is sitting. It could be a boy or a girl. It looks about six, but actually is nearly ten. It is feeble-minded. Perhaps it was born defective, or perhaps it has become imbecile through fear, malnutrition and neglect. 
It picks its nose and occasionally fumbles vaguely with its toes or genitals, as it sits hunched in a corner farthest from the bucket and the two mops. It is afraid of the mops. It finds them horrible. It shuts its eyes, but it knows the mops are still standing there, and the door is locked, and nobody will come. The door is always locked, and nobody ever comes. Except that sometimes the child has no understanding of time or interval. Sometimes the door rattles terribly and opens, and the person, or several people, are there. One of them may come in and kick the child to make it stand up. The others never come close, but peer at it with frightened, disgusted eyes. The food bowl and the water jug are hastily filled. The door is locked. The eyes disappear. The people at the door never say anything, but the child, who has not always lived in the tool room, and can remember sunlight and its mother's voice, sometimes speaks. I will be good, it says. Please let me out. I will be good. They never answer. The child used to scream for help at night and cry a good deal. But now it only makes a kind of whining. <laughs> and it speaks less and less often. It is so thin there are no calves to its legs. Its belly protrudes. It lives on a half bowl of cornmeal and grease a day. It is naked. Its buttocks and thighs are a mass of festered sores as it sits in its own excrement continually. They all know it is there, all the people of Omelas. Some of them have come to see it, others are content merely to know that it is there. They all know that it has to be there. Some of them understand why and some do not, but they all understand that their happiness, the beauty of their city, the tenderness of their friendships, the health of their children, the wisdom of their scholars, the skill of their makers, even the abundance of their harvests and the kindly weathers of their skies depend wholly on this child's abominable misery. This is usually explained to children when they are between eight and twelve, whenever they seem capable of understanding. And most of those who come to see the child are young people, though often enough an adult comes, or comes back, to see the child. No matter how well the matter has been explained to them, these young spectators are always shocked and sickened at the sight. They feel disgust, which they had thought themselves superior to. They feel anger, outrage, impotence, despite all the explanations. They would like to do something for the child, but there is nothing they can do. If the child were brought up into the sunlight out of that vile place, 
if it were cleaned and fed and comforted, that would be a good thing indeed. But if it were done in that day and hour, all the prosperity and beauty and delight of Amelas would wither and be destroyed. Those are the terms. To exchange all the goodness and grace of every life in Omelas for that single small improvement. To throw away the happiness of thousands for the chance of the happiness of one. That would be to let guilt within the walls indeed. The terms are strict and absolute. There may not even be a kind word spoken to the child. Often the young people go home in tears or in a tearless rage when they have seen the child and faced this terrible paradox. They may brood over it for weeks or years, but as time goes on they begin to realize that even if the child could be released, it would not get much good of its freedom. A little vague pleasure of warmth and food, no doubt, but little more. It is too degraded and imbecile to know any real joy. It has been afraid too long ever to be free of fear. Its habits are too uncouth for it to respond to humane treatment. Indeed, after so long, it would probably be wretched without walls about it to protect it and darkness for its eyes and its own excrement to sit in. Their tears at the bitter injustice dry when they begin to perceive the terrible justice of reality and to accept it. Yet it is their tears and anger, the trying of their generosity and the acceptance of their helplessness, which are perhaps the true source of the splendor of their lives. Theirs is no vapid, irresponsible happiness. They know that they, like the child, are not free. They know compassion. It is the existence of the child and their knowledge of its existence that makes possible the nobility of their architecture, the poignancy of their music, the profundity of their science. It is because of the child that they are so gentle with children. They know that if the wretched one were not there snivelling in the dark, the other one, the flute player, could make no joyful music as the young riders line up in their beauty for the race in the sunlight of the first morning of summer. Now do you believe in them? Are they not more credible? But there is one more thing to tell, and it is quite incredible. At times one of the adolescent girls or boys who go to see the child does not go home to weep or age, does not in fact go home at all. Sometimes also a man or woman much older falls silent for a day or two and then leaves home. These people go out into the street and walk down the street alone. They keep walking and walk straight out of the city of Omelas through the beautiful gates. They keep walking across the farmlands of Omelas. Each one goes alone, 
youth or girl, man or woman. Night falls. The traveller must pass down village streets between the houses with yellow-lit windows and on out into the darkness of the fields. Each alone they go west or north towards the mountains. They go on. They leave Omelas. They walk ahead into the darkness and they do not come back. The place they go towards is a place even less imaginable to most of us than the city of happiness. I cannot describe it at all. It is possible that it does not exist. But they seem to know where they are going, the ones who walk away from Omelas. Thank you for listening to Voice of the Fire. My name is Sebastian Buchner. I am a storyteller. You can find the podcast Voice of the Fire on iTunes and SoundCloud. So go there and check it out. Leave us likes, leave us comments, because this podcast, like any other, lives from community interaction, lives from feedback, and lives from the conversation that it creates. <laughs> <laughs>